All right, in our third and final segment, let's talk about three great American speeches. Monday marked Martin Luther King's birthday, and his I Have a Dream speech certainly is regarded as possibly the greatest speech in American history. And it may be that, but in my mind, at least as important, and perhaps even more important, was a speech delivered 50 years ago on this Martin Luther King Day, January 17, 1961. It was the farewell address to the nation by President Dwight D. Eisenhower. We've talked about it before, but today we should talk about it again. And of course, John F. Kennedy's inaugural speech delivered 50 years ago today remains a candidate for the greatest inaugural speech ever given. Let's start with Martin Luther King, whose birthday we commemorated this week. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. Inspiring words that did indeed help this to become a better country. I'm glad that I'm old enough to remember Martin Luther King. It's hard to imagine he's been gone almost 43 years, considering that he only lived to be 38. Let us talk about Dwight D. Eisenhower's farewell address. Eisenhower had been the Allies' supreme commander during World War II. He planned the D-Day invasion and was a lifelong military man. Both parties would have liked to have run him for president in 1952, but he went with the Republicans and served two terms as president. As he prepared to leave office, he gave uh, a speech which I think all of you should hear or read, dear listener. It's available in many locations on the internet, and even if you've heard it before, I suggest you should hear it again in its entirety. Due to time constraints, we're going to excerpt it today. We now stand 10 years past the midpoint of a century that has witnessed four major wars among great nations. Three of these involved our own country. Despite these holocausts, America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. Understandably proud of this preeminence, we yet realize that America's leadership and prestige depend not merely upon our unmatched material progress, riches, and military strength, but on how we use our power in the interest of world peace and human betterment. Crises there will continue to be. In meeting them, whether foreign or domestic, great or small, 
there is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. A huge increase in newer elements of our defenses, development of unrealistic programs to cure every ill in agriculture, a dramatic expansion in basic and applied research. These and many other possibilities, each possibly promising in itself, may be suggested as the only way to the road we wish to travel. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty, ready for instant action, so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. Together, we must learn how to compose differences, not with arms, but with intellect and decent purpose. Because this need is so sharp and apparent, I confess that I lay down my official responsibilities in this field with a definite sense of disappointment. As one who has witnessed the horror and the lingering sadness of war, as one who knows that another war could utterly destroy this civilization, which has been so slowly and painfully built over thousands of years, I wish I could say tonight that a lasting peace is in sight. Happily, I can say that war has been avoided. Steady progress toward our ultimate goal has been made, but so much remains to be done. Anyway, that's part of the speech. I suggest you read the entire thing on the web. I would note in saying this that a lot of what Eisenhower feared would happen has happened. 
I'm quite certain that if Dwight Eisenhower had been president, we would not have these quagmire wars going on in Afghanistan and Iraq. The main purpose of which, if the truth be told, seems to be to enrich the military-industrial complex. Or so it seems, sadly, to this correspondent. All right, 50 years ago today, January 20th, 1961, John F. Kennedy moved the nation with words he composed, let's just say with some help from Ted Sorensen. Let's do an excerpt, Mr. McMillan. Finally, to those nations who would make themselves our adversary, we offer not a pledge, but a request that both sides begin anew the quest for peace. Before the dark powers of destruction unleashed by science engulf all humanity in planned or accidental self-destruction. We dare not tempt them with weakness, for only when our arms are sufficient beyond doubt can we be certain beyond doubt that they will never be employed. But neither can two great and powerful groups of nations take comfort from our present course, both sides overburdened by the cost of modern weapons, both rightly alarmed by the steady spread of the deadly atom, yet both racing to alter that uncertain balance of terror that stays the hand of mankind's final war. So let us begin anew. Remembering on both sides that civility is not a sign of weakness and sincerity is always subject to proof. Let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. I must say, in all the years since his passing, we've never seen anything quite like John F. Kennedy. Yes, it's true, Ronald Reagan had a certain charisma, which I guess got him close to Kennedy's. But if you've ever seen, and I, and I dearly suggest that you, you dig this up on YouTube or wherever, the televised press conference that John F. Kennedy gave, I'm guessing sometime in 1962 perhaps, when he takes the podium and fields questions from the newsmen, it, it has to be seen to be believed. He appears the absolute master of the topics at hand, and a charismatic though Ronald Reagan may have been, every time he was turned loose to go off script in a press conference, uh, well, let's just say mayhem usually resulted. He tended not to be scrupulous, shall we say, about the actual facts involved. But uh, for a look back at what took place 50 years ago today, we'd refer you to the current edition of Vanity Fair magazine. Article by Todd Purdom, titled From That Day Forth, tells the story about uh, what went into that inauguration, which, uh, unlike any before or since, blended politics and, uh, and show business. With a little help from Frank Sinatra, JFK put on a hell of a show. In fact, the article quotes Betty Davis about the event, saying, The world of entertainment, showbiz, if you please, has become the sixth estate, just as Hawaii has become the 50th state. Those words, by the way, were penned by Norman Corwin, the prominent radio dramatist and former Radio Parallax guest. 
Norman Corwin is still alive at 100 and is just a marvel. If you didn't hear our interview with him uh, on this show, we refer you to our archives. It was one of our favorites. But uh, Norman Corwin made his uh, presence known that day also in uh, uh, some words recited by Frederick March. March asked, God himself, who makes no loud and brassy judgments and who prefers our prayers to be free of static, to give us zest for new frontiers and the faith to say unto mountains, whether made of granite or red tape, remove. Damn, Corwin had a way with words. The final little tidbit from the article and the show, which I love, is as follows. According to Todd Purdom, as Kennedy made his way down the aisle to his seat, he sought Tip O'Neill, who held JFK's old congressional seat, alongside George Kara, an affluent Boston businessman with a reputation for showing up in the most unexpected places without the requisite ticket. Tip O'Neill later recalled that Kara nudged him and said, Years from now, historians will wonder what was on the young man's mind as he strode to take his oath of office. I bet he's asking himself, how George Kara got such a good seat? That night, O'Neill and his wife danced over to the president's box at the ball in the Mayflower Hotel to congratulate him. And sure enough, Kennedy asked him, Was that George Kara sitting beside you? O'Neill told Kennedy what Kara had said. And JFK replied, Tip, you'll never believe it. I had my left hand on the Bible and my right hand in the air and was about to take the oath of office. And I said to myself, How the hell did Kara get that seat? Hell of a guy, JFK. He is sorely missed. As for that matter, is President Eisenhower and the late, great Martin Luther King. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Our interview next week is a fun one. Mr. Kevin Cook discussing Titanic Thompson, the man who bet on everything. We'll see you next week at the same time, hopefully with a little bit better voice.